Have you ever stopped to think that virtually everything we use in our daily lives is based on technology? Even further, do you understand the software behind this technology? Welcome to The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. In today's program, you'll hear how software is created and implemented, why it's written the way it is, and learn from its success stories, proven best practices, and significant failures. Now, here is your host, Martin Lacey. Hi, and welcome back to The Art of Software. I'm your host, Martin Lacey. Today, we're going to have a really exciting show for you. We're going to be talking about, well, today's show is called Leadership at the Edge, Leadership at the Edge Business Advantage in Software Capability. So to wrap us up into this really exciting topic, uh, we're going to be talking with Richard, uh, Richard Rogers, um, who's going to help us digest and work us way through um, microservices and containerization and what he's done at the, at the leadership um, of bringing this technology to, to bear and uh, how he's managed to excite and build that um, software teams that can build awesome technology quickly. Uh, so without any further ado, uh, let me bring you in. Uh, our special guest today is Richard, Roger, Richard Rogers, who's the author of Tau of Microservices, CTO, CEO, Near Forms. I, I believe that was your past engagement. Yeah. <laughs> and, and We're going to have to do one soon. <laughs> uh, well, I'm kind of jumping all over the place uh, because I'm, I guess I'm showing my excitement in talking to you. Um, of course, you've been the owner of RiceBridge and founder, now the founder and CEO of VoxGig. Uh, so it, uh, with all that uh, activity going on, uh, Richard, and uh, you're, you're, of course, in Ireland Right now, and I'm back in Vancouver, so we've got ourselves a, a good eight hours of, of time difference. So I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be here, Martin. Thank you very much yourself. Um, now, we're going to talk about microservices and containerization and, um, you know, try and educate the audience as well as myself, because there's a lot of questions I have. We're getting right into the, the bowels of, of building applications with microservices. But before we get into you know, the details of it, um, I'd like us to, to walk through um, and try and give people um, a sense of what are microservices and why they're so great um, and you know, how you come, came to, to adopting and, and being such a, um, a catalyst for, for their adoption. So perhaps, Richard, if you can uh, walk us through what you did at Nearform and, you know, basically how, how you came up to building this team. Yeah. Um, so microservices were not something that I chose to build. Yeah. Uh, they were forced on me by JavaScript. Okay. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna rewind just a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was I was the um, CTO and, and then first uh, employee at a startup called Feed Henry, which was subsequently it was a, a mobile apps platform. It was subsequently bought by Red Hat and turned into Red Hat Mobile. Oh, I didn't really? stay around for the yeah. I didn't stay around for the exit. Uh, oh <laughs> startup, startup life is yeah. Startup life can be hard. Yes. Uh, but uh, that was a that was a Java-based system, and man, Java is just so painful. And after ten years of Java, my learning from that was: if you want to if you want to do a startup, uh, if you want to give yourself a better chance of success, you've got to be able to execute fast. And uh, you know, maybe I'm just not a good coder, but Java is a, is a slow language to develop in. Uh, it's a very fast language these days, of course, but in terms of Execution on velocity libraries, and, of course, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but execution velocity in, in terms of uh, that early stage of a startup where you have no idea what you're building, you need to iterate rapidly. Um, yeah. It was too slow. And uh, as I was leaving Feed Henry, I came across uh, the really early versions of Node.js. I was trying PHP. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, no, Lisp and a couple of other things. Oh, wow. Just yeah, to. <laughs> well, hey, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I even got read Lisp from one point. That was interesting. <laughs> well, if you read um, Paul Graham, the guy who founded Y Combinator, uh, 
he has this great essay called Beating the Averages. It was one of his first essays. Uh, back when his essays were good. And uh, he talks about using Lisp. And he talks about being able to uh, fix bugs in real time while they had customers on the phone. Oh, yeah. And, and he go, oh, yeah, read out the page. Are you sure that? Are you sure there's a bug? And, of course, the bug would be gone, which I thought this was awesome. <laughs> Just try it again. I, gotta I, get don't, I don't see it happening for me. <laughs> yeah, i got to get me some of this. Uh, where, you know, I'm, I'm trying to start up, like, uh, Tomcat, and it's taken me two minutes to run. Right? <laughs> and we, so in Feed Henry, we had, uh, this was back in the days when some microsystems were still around, and we had... Uh, if anybody, if anybody remembers buying your own servers, we had T1000s and T2000s. These were like 64 core mega machines. They were awesome. Wow. Um, but the price you paid for all those cores was each individual core was pretty slow. It's like the startup time for, of our stack was something like three or four minutes. Um, so when you're trying to iterate, iterate quickly, man, we thought we were so cool. We were deploying once every two weeks. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. That's awesome, really. <laughs> uh, so I was like, man, forget about all this stuff. Let's let's uh, let's let's, you know, the, the the Moore's law means scripting languages can do it now, and I need something really fast, quick, and dirty. Um, Node came along, absolutely loved it. Uh, did not realize that callback hell was a thing, because it totally is a thing. <laughs> um, and. Uh, yeah, well, you, I mean, I, I like doing startups. Uh, I worked for a German bank once, and, you know, it was a great career, but I left after six months. Uh, <laughs> I, like, I, like to, <laughs> I just like to do new things, right? Yeah. And, uh, that, that's why I started working with the consulting companies myself, because you're always yeah. moving around. Yeah, you know, that's, the, that's the fantastic thing about it, consulting companies, which we decided to, uh, with a couple of other guys who had all come from failed startups, uh, so we we had no cash. We, we were kind of living, you know, month to month, trying yeah. to get trying to get paid a few invoices from freelancing, uh, which is a pretty tough gig, you know. Sometimes, yeah. And uh, the four of us, yeah, four of us kind of came together, and it was still pretty nerve wracking for the first three years. But we kind of went all in on Node and JavaScript, and you know, isomorphic JavaScript, the same language everywhere. Um, yeah. Turns out building enterprise systems in JavaScript is a really bad idea. <laughs> uh, the language has, has so so the nice thing about Java, of course, it was designed for building big systems. You have structure, you have inheritance, you have classes, you have some sort of you have a package system. Um, okay. JavaScript is really kind of yeah, the theory was good. <laughs> it was a bit too verbose. But in JavaScript you have just this crazy mess, right? The language was invented in, in two weeks or something. Um, so you end up, you know, you, you write your traditional monolith and you end up, once you go past about 3,000 lines of code, it's, it's, a complete, it's just a mess. Um, and we ended up in a lot of trouble in the early days. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we were trying to, our whole, our whole kind of spiel was we, we helped you build your MVP. And, and we kind of targeted big companies that were trying to be agile. So we would... What we were selling was not just the software, the development, but the internal change. So we kind of caught on to this digital transformation wave. This is how you sell to big companies, right? You find a <laughs> yeah, you find a catchphrase, and you you just go all in on the catchphrase. So we were trying to teach their teams to be uh, super fast, and you know, agile is kind of a it's a difficult word. Um, that's but low what I mean. Yeah, these days it is. Yeah. Take me back to the days of extreme programming. What a great book, you know. And it was that was that was an mm. awesome book back back before it was it was. Anyway, <laughs> the less said about that, the better. <laughs> and uh, we had to, we had to show these teams how to be able to build something really fast, iterate quickly, and that was wonderful for the first couple of iterations uh, until the complexity. Well, the JavaScript code sort of imploded in on itself. Yeah. Um, and that's where our, we kind of realized uh, we need a way to create a, a component model. Mm-hmm. And, and you have you have node modules, right? You have npm, js.org, and all that sort of stuff. But I, I don't mean utility components. I don't mean uh, image resizers and database drivers. Um, I don't mean UI widgets. I mean, business logic components, like right. if I have to write the code for a 
shopping cart one more time. <laughs> Gotta go crazy. Uh, oh, you must be ahead of yeah. my notes. <laughs> yeah, user account management, all that stuff. Um, and we, it was in the search for a component model within the context of a monolith that, that starts us down the down the path to microservices. Yes, um, yeah, exactly. I've got like one percent of the way there, haven't I? <laughs> Well, that's that's that's, that's the yeah. that's common problem, right? Is this big monolith that we're dealing with the legacy, and even just not even if it's coded, but legacy ideas. Yeah, yeah. It's what 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 happens. What happens in the monolith is because you know you're going to build it, uh, you you over design at the start, um, and you end up with a data model that. Um, you know, and it's worse if you're actually a good, if you're a good analyst or a good engineer, because you design data model that overfits. Yeah. The the problem at hand. Um, you go a little bit beyond the edge. Yeah, yeah, and it turns out then that um, you know the, the real world doesn't cooperate. Clients come in with new requirements. They kind of forget to tell you stuff. Um, I built a stock trading system in 1999. <laughs> Back, back in the day, I get this actually, there's a, there's a small irony here. I thought I was super professional building the stock trading system. It was for an Irish stockbroker in yeah. Java. And there was a competing company that had built their kind of consumer content website using LiveScript. Do you remember Netscape had a server-side JavaScript solution oh. in the late 90s? Oh, really? Yeah. Back then. <laughs> Go look it up. Uh, so JavaScript on the server side, this is like the second coming, right? Yeah, <laughs> it was done before. It was done in the nineties, uh, and it was it was a it was a disaster then as well. But um, the, the this particular stockbroker had given us a data model. Uh, there's only like ninety companies on the Irish stock exchange, right? So how could it be a hard problem? Right? Every company has like a PE ratio, all this, the usual stuff. Yeah, very simple structure. I mean, where, where yeah. can you go wrong? How can you go wrong? It's like one table. Well, it turns out three weeks before launch, turns out that the financial ratios for banks are totally different. They just use different ratios. Different ratios. Yeah, when you think about it, it makes sense, right? They're financial institutions. Um, and we had a database model that, that, so what ended up happening was we had like, five or six database fields that were named one thing, uh, but for banks meant something totally different. And we had to oh, like just a, have like, we just had like code comments going, oh yeah, yeah by the way, this almost is a totally a, different a, thing, right? A coded record structure uh, without the formality. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you, so the problem is if, if you, um, if you have a monolith and you have this uh, over-designed schema yeah, uh, when you do run into the inevitable technical debt and changes, um, they permeate. They permeate too much, and your tendency is to extend the schema. But then yes. that has repercussions all over the code base, and your tendency is just to add more if statements and special cases. Well, once you uh, extend the schema, it ripples all the way through. I mean, that's the smallest sure. smallest point, and all the way up the layers, you're adding more and more. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so this is this is great uh, speaker, a guy called Greg Young, um, and he has he has this great talk. Uh, you can get it on YouTube. It's, it's called uh, Disposable Software, I think. Uh, he gives the whole talk without slides. It's like a forty-minute talk uh, from the heart. And one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. But he talks about the fact that the only real way to defeat technical debt is to write code that you can throw away. Right. Um, yeah, so I was kind of, all code. these ideas were kind yeah. of floating around in my head. I was going, well, we need a component model. We were still building monoliths. Um, but I, I kind of came up with this notion of the the command pattern is a fairly standard object-oriented pattern. Um, and I kind of was riffing on the command pattern saying, well, you know, it's kind of like messages going from one component to another. Yeah. And if we make that super strict, you can only send messages. Yeah, you know, a little bit like service workers. Um, but... At the same time, the problem then is how do you know where to send a message? And this kind of gets to the heart of what I think is the, the sort of deadly, poisonous, fatal flaw in uh, the way most software is conceived, which is, okay, so there's this diagram where you have a box with it marked A and you have a box marked B and there's an arrow going from A to B. And that describes every software system ever. Yeah. Right? 
A calls B, right? And an A is A can be they could be two objects. It could be Corba, it could be a foreign key relationship, it, whatever, right? Um, but the problem is A has to know the identity of B. Now, if I'm if I'm uh, let's jump ahead, right? If, if I'm a microservice written in a naive way, I have internal HTTP calls or HTTPS if you're being good to other microservices. And yeah. I'm embedding their network locations, or maybe I'm maybe I'm using a proxy, but I, but the URL path is still embedding some notion of identity. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, A knows who B is, and A decides I'm going to send a message to B, and B is going to do things for me. Uh, I think that's the problem, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, there, there's well, there's a bunch of things wrapped up into that. I mean, there's the discovery. Um, I mean, if you don't have that, sure. that right connection, how do you discover? And of course, how do you make the the you know? Uh, sorry, I'm jump, jumping the gun into questions I have for you, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's all about this mes- messaging construct and how do you find services that that you're looking for, and how do you describe yourself in a way that you know other services can find you and make use of you in a generic way? Are you gonna? Tell us a little bit, little bit about how you. Yeah, yeah, but 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 I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna go philosophical on you first. <laughs> okay, sure, <laughs> Martin. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So in some ways, yeah, it's super cool and it's interesting, and we can talk about the uh, the swim algorithm and all that all that funky stuff. And I mean, these days you have wonderful service mesh solutions like Istio. I mean, some there's some really cool there's really cool ways of solving the discovery problem uh, and getting a whole bunch of extra stuff on, on top of that. But mm-hmm. at a philosophical level, we are dealing with software components. It doesn't matter if they're in the same process or different containers or the same Kubernetes pod or uh, different parts of the world. Um, and I'm not ignoring latency or the, the fallacies of network engineering here. Well, this is a conceptual model where... Uh, Different components shouldn't know about each other. The, the components view of the world has to be, I get messages in from somebody, don't know. Uh, I do my thing and I send messages out. And again, I don't know where they go. Yeah, that, that's, uh, yeah that's the exactly. systems. That's the systems kind of thing, right? Now, yeah. I mean, you, this kind of aggressive actor-based models where you're, you're kind of putting messages onto something like a Kafka bus and then different services are randomly responding to them. Um, you know, you go all the way up to event sourcing. What I'm describing here isn't event sourcing. Okay. Um, it's actually it's actually much simpler because inside my microservice, I still have a traditional uh, database connection. I still run SQL queries and do my thing. Okay, I, I, yeah. I, I'm just talking about how do you wire together software components? Um, what's a good mo- what's a good model? Like Unix command line is a good model, right? Because you can just pipe text <laughs> I was say, or, yeah. or, or binary from one thing to another, right? Yeah, uh, and you just compose all these pieces together. It's super cool. The problem is it's too simple because all you're doing is sending streams of bytes. Um, you can't build. You can't build complex business logic with that. No. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 <laughs> there are some problem. guys with beards who would probably disagree. But well, uh, I mean, then, then you get really esoteric systems where you can't understand yeah, them. Yeah. I mean, that's not, you know, it's defeating the point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, have you ever written bash scripts? It's, it's kind of fun. <laughs> um, so you, you're, you're, you're trying to find a way to compose services together. So I, I, did, uh, I did math in, in school, um, and I, I'm kind of obsessed with this notion of composability because it's actually the, the it's why Lisp is such a cool language. It's why people are people who get into functional languages are so obsessed with them is because you can compose things together. It's yes. just like Legos. It is just like Legos. Right? Yeah. You, you, you just build up the thing from small pieces and it just works. Uh, and most of our software components models have failed to do that, right? Enterprise Java beans, uh, .NET assemblies, node mm-hmm. modules. They fail because they're, uh, they're hairy. Right, you can you think about it. Even think about it. What was supposed to be the perfect component model, object-oriented programming, right? And you've yeah. got class methods, and you've got uh, you know ordinary instance methods, and you've got properties, and you've got interfaces. You've got a whole different bunch of ways that you can interact with the component, um, and, and and every extra way doubles complexity. Yeah. So you're trying to build. Com- composition and it doesn't really work because somehow you have to map 
the output to the input of different components. But at the same time, you need complexity to get get your work done. Um, so I, I kind of I was experimenting with this command pattern, and I said, well, let's just do the simplest, stupidest thing that, that that'll work. Um, messages are JSON documents, and there's no endpoints, there's no URLs, there's no service identifiers. Um, if I get a JSON document sent to me, I look at some of its properties, and if I like them, it's for me, and I do my stuff. And if I don't like them, I just ignore it. So do you uh, end up having to inspect every message then? It's, it, I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like. On the yeah, surface. you do. You do. But at the same time, um, you know, if you're using a service mesh, that's, it's going to be doing it anyway, right? Right. <laughs> at, at, at the end of the day, the software engineering is all about trade-offs. Um, this whole microservices approach is a huge trade-off. You are... Uh, gaining execution velocity and you are paying for it in higher latency and less efficient system. Um, and a little bit down the road, 12 months into the project, or 24 months into the project, when the, the solution is stabilized, uh, what you do is you, you, <laughs> you, de-micro, you, you de-microservicize, uh, especially the hot pathways, uh, and you actually merge the services back together again. Uh, boy, we, maybe we'll get onto that in, in a little while. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's interesting. So you're making this explicit engineering trade-off. I want tons of flexibility now, and because I don't understand my domain, um, and I'm going to pay the price in in latency and um, inefficiency. Uh, but what that means is that uh, if I'm if I if I need to implement a particular type of logic, uh, I love SalesX. SalesX is my kind of go-to example, right? Because yeah. changes uh, my jurisdiction and hey, it has a temporal aspect, right? This there are some jurisdictions that have different sales tax at the weekend for different types of uh, items. Yes, uh, exactly. I yeah. kid you not, right? I mean, uh, in Europe, <laughs> we do it in kind Canada. Of complex, right? Uh, but like North America, <laughs> it gets, it's just crazy, crazy worse, right? Um, so if you're trying to implement a sales tax system, but you can apply this to any complex domain, especially when the, the business people are throwing changing requirements at you all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, if you implement the simplest case, which is you just add a percentage to the price, job done. Um, that's that's a simple piece. That's simple and easy to to to, to implement. Yeah. But then all these extra requirements come on, and what you do is you start adding uh, little schemas and lookup tables and if statements and all sorts of stuff, and they all go in one place, and it just becomes super complex software. Or multiple Instead, Exactly, right? Instead, just leave the simple thing simple, and then add extra uh, special cases for the hard stuff. And then... When a message says the uh, jurisdiction or the county is X, which has a really weird case for genes on Sundays, you route that message to the microservice that just or the component that just deals with that special hard case. Ninety percent of your traffic goes through the easy stuff, um, and that way you've you've sort of separated the technical debt into a safe place where you can change it and throw it away. So your microservice architecture then kind of embodies the specialization. If we could talk in object-oriented terms, um, yes, that's where you push push it out. Yeah. So your whole world becomes okay. Solve the general case first, which is kind of a really weird inversion, right? Because you're yes. taught to like write it three times and then generalize. No, write the easy, simple general code. Um, and then specialize. And don't allow your easy code to be corrupted, literally corrupted by the special cases. Put the special cases in, into, into their own horrible little hells uh, and, and leave them there where they can't do any damage. Because yeah. they're going to change, right? Absolutely. We, we call those the outlier conditions, right? Yeah. So the, the things that are on the periphery that 99% of the time you're never going to hit, it's just, but you have to build for them anyway. Exactly, exactly. Um, so that, that just gives you a really powerful way to contain technical debt. It gives you a really powerful way to deal with rapidly changing requirements or the fact that you've just got your requirements wrong in the early days of the project. Um, and that, that's why it doesn't really matter how you implement that. Um, it's more about taking the right philosophical stance to your architecture. Uh, but we can totally talk about implementation. That's also super interesting. 
Yeah, look, well, let's talk about that once we uh, have a break. We're going to have a quick break, um, but I do want to come back to this. This is really exciting and a great approach um, to adopting, well, not only just microservice architecture, but to really uh, to fully embrace an object-oriented metaphor and evolve your your capabilities as well as your services and just by extension. So uh, I think this is really awesome uh, conversation we're, we've got going on here, Richard. Uh, we're just going to have a quick break, and awesome. uh, we'll be back. Thanks. You're listening to The Art of Software. Uh, I'm your host, Martin Lacey, and we'll be back shortly with Richard Rogers. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacey at laceytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Hi, and welcome back to The Art of Software. Today, we're having a fantastic conversation with Richard Rogers. He's talking all about microservices and containerization and his uh, history in bringing uh, to life, uh, building microservices architecture and uh, getting businesses to adopt and what it's like uh, being a leader at the edge of this uh, technology and really what it takes to build applications using microservices and the uh, the, the trials by fire, basically, the things that he's had to work with and uh, the discoveries he's made. So it's uh, really an eye-opener for me, and I'm hoping you're getting as much as I, out of it as I am. So let's just write, continue where we start, finish off with there, Richard. Sure. So the, the, um, uh, uh, this approach does give you a ton of flexibility, but... Um, it, it can also give you a world of pain. When you were talking about trials by fire, I was just, just thinking of a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, we, you know, this, this, didn't, this didn't emerge fully formed. Um, this, this approach took uh, four or five years of, of experimentation and um, consulting projects, uh, you know, moving, moving forward a little bit each time and kind of trying different things. Um, I, you know, if you're if you're if you have some exposure to uh, people who come in as architecture consultants, you you might feel a little skepticism because um, you know we, we do spend a lot of time doing PowerPoint presentations and that sort of stuff. Uh, but this stuff does work. Uh, I'm using it on my my current startup. Um, so consulting um, is is a wonderful business, um, but you know you're always building code for somebody else and. Yes, I wanted to build code for myself. Um, and this is what you're using a box gig now, then I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, we kind of took the step and we said, "Well, microservices from day one, um, because it gives us flexibility." But here's trial by fire for you, right? So, when you're building microservices for a large enterprise client, your Amazon bill or your Google Cloud bill or your Azure bill doesn't really matter that much. Um, and what I, you know, the approach I used to take is, you know, we'd use Kubernetes and we all the microservices would be in their own pods and they'd be scaling and, you know, it'd be fun. You'd be running like loads of pods. Uh, turns out when you've got to pay the bills, that's kind of expensive. Um, 
It's, it's <laughs> doing actual microservices in a startup uh, using Kubernetes. Um, yeah, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And, and if you try to optimize by uh, reducing, um, you know, the, the power of the machines and memory and stuff, what happens yeah. is the the services keep they, they they just have a really high failure rate, and your your whole system becomes unstable. Um, so we yeah you know, we 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 were thinking, man, we're running really bad code. It keeps crashing. Uh, but the problem is we we kind of we'd reduce the size of the, the the VMs too much. Um, but this is where another principle uh, saved our lives. So you have this whole idea of, of, of routing messages based on really simple patterns that match the, the a few properties in the messages. And that's, that's all you kind of need to have a decent component model that gives you enough, enough complexity for, for, for most business logic. Um, but the other aspect to it is uh, the reason why I say it doesn't matter a whole huge amount how you implement this. Um, and that principle is to have transport independence. It shouldn't matter yeah. whether it's HTTP calls or it's a Kafka bus or, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's going through RabbitMQ or whatever, right? it, or, you know, the, the SQS or whatever it is. It, sh- it shouldn't matter. Uh, from the perspective of the service it's you send a message might get a reply who knows um so if you take that approach uh one way that you can send messages to other microservices is if they're in the same process it's just a method call and if you have a lovely message abstraction layer um you can actually start merging some of the microservices you keep all the benefits of the componentization model um but now you uh, now you get the ability to run a whole bunch of them in bundles in the same process. Um, so we yeah. were able to do that, thankfully, and, and <laughs> save ourselves a bunch of money. Um, so we yeah. have a sort of a partial monolith now, um, yeah, purely well, for cost reasons. You know, it, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that because I kind of tripped onto that by accident. And I was basically studying and looking at our services today and going, well, you know, they're, they're nicely designed, componentized, but when they're compiled and built, we're actually got microservices that contain aspects of each other in them um, just by the, the their proximity in, in, their, in their build, right? And they're, they're, they're you know, put together along uh, in, the, in the same DLL and the same or uh, alongside the different AXEs, but they're still yeah, packaged yeah. together. And that's okay, right? As long as, as long as you maintain the discipline that you can pull them apart again. Yes. The discipline comes from this really strict message metaphor. Um, there's one, one other nuance I should mention that I found useful. Um, so if you want to be like really sort of extreme, um, you use asynchronous messages everywhere, right? And no message right. has a response. But you know what? That, it's kind of overkill. Um, a lot of enterprise software development is... Uh, request response based mm. uh, so we, we introduced this notion of you can send a message and get a response back and it is synchronous um, but you know what it, it's fine it, it, it doesn't it doesn't really introduce that many problems and it really fits most of the implementation logic uh, pretty well and then you have the asynchronous case when you need that as well um, so if you, you if you pull all those things together, uh, you end up with you end, just going back to why <laughs> why are we doing this? You end up with a model that gives you the a, a whole ton of flexibility in the early days, which is what you need. Um, but also a model that lets you do things like as we did for cost reasons, but you, in a in a once you're scaling, you would do for for latency and, and efficiency reasons. There are certain hot paths through the system. Um, once you've identified those. You can just merge the microservices, and when I say merge, I, I don't mean merge the code. I just mean put them in the same process. Uh, okay. Message passing becomes function calls, but it still goes through an abstraction layer, so you can put them apart again if you want. Um, okay, gotcha. So you, you've got to yeah. get out of jail. You see, if you yes. do this, you've got to get out of jail. So it doesn't really matter. You don't end up in this horrible place where you have like six layers and and crazy latency. Um, so it almost becomes an implementation concern. Well, we're putting it together for performance reasons, but yes. architecturally, they're they're you know designed and communi- with communication infrastructure so that they are designed independently. 
Exactly. And I mean, this is why I go nuts when uh, people do microservices, but then I look at their code and there's like a whole bunch of, of HTTP client calls using whatever library. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like, no, that's just crazy. Yeah. Even if those calls <laughs> are to a proxy, because the, the problem is how, how do you abstract that away? Yeah. How do you how do you change? Even if you run everything in the same process, you're still generating network traffic. Pointlessly. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and you're you're kind of you're kind of then you are really stuck with the request response metaphor. Like if you use an abstraction layer for the messages, you can convert synchronous calls into asynchronous ones. It's not that hard. Um, yeah. And it's and it doesn't really disturb your your it doesn't really disturb your primary business logic. Uh, At least. Yeah, you know, and you still want to maintain some sort of loose coupling too, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> now, of course, I go all in on, on on the looseness side of things, so I don't I don't use message schemas. Um, so that's a nice little point of contention because there's definitely uh, there's definitely a majority of people who, who feel that's kind of necessary. Um, and there's a movement towards type safety these days, and you see that with the rise of TypeScript, um, yeah, you know, and, and things like that as well. Um, yeah, it's it's got a certain amount of merit. I mean, it's um, well, it's very appealing to me as a mathematician, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I don't know. I, in practice, um, reasonable amounts of unit testing, it hasn't really impeded me. Um, I, you know, it, of course, it's hard to have a like truly scientific experiment where you do it one way with one team and the other way with another. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm just like thirty percent slower, and I don't know. <laughs> and it all levels up. <laughs> We're going, hey, I think I'm really fast, guys. <laughs> it was like, yeah, don't tell me he's kind of slow. <laughs> uh, couldn't be, but hey, I, you know, I read the book, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, and I think it goes back to this idea of you need you need the flexibility in the early days. Um, add validation later, right? And then sometimes, actually, we, we kind of do do this, right? It's not type safety, but we do add uh, some form of message validation after a couple of months once something is stabilized. Yeah. Because um, yeah. then it's, you know, the, the cost of, the, the probability of change is low, right? That's, that, that, that's the issue. Um, yeah. Well, it, you know. after that, it's more performance considerations, or or because the business rules, business justification doesn't change much. It it might evolve, might be a, new things added to it. But if you understand the business, the business rules don't really change. Exactly. Exactly. So a couple of interesting things happen with the system like this. So we we've been working on the the, the current system. And the current system, just so you can kind of get an idea of what it is, it's about forty five ish microservices. Um, wow. Uh, the system itself is uh, it's kind of a social network for for conferences. I, I don't know if you remember there was this website called Lanyard a couple of years back. L a n y r d dot com. Um, and it's, it used to be like, you know, where all conference speakers could kind of come together and put up their profiles and find cool conferences and stuff like that. Uh, okay. It seems to be down a lot these days. Um, so, I, you know, we're kind of going, well, you know, it's missing. They're down as you're up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Someone needs to do it again. And I, I speak at conferences and the whole logistics around planning which conferences you should go to and... You know, if I get a conference organizer sending me an email going, please send me your bio and your photo one more time, I'm going to scream because why can't I just send them a link? Um, yeah, yeah, so, you know, gotcha. It's, it's, okay, so, so like it's, you know, it's a relatively high load system, large user base, this sort of thing. Um, yeah. What happens, what happens when you use microservices after 15 months, right? We've, so we've been up 15 months. What, what do they end up looking like? You end up with uh, a power load distribution, um, across a number of different variables. So there's, there's like a core set of services that are long-lived yeah. that hang around forever. Um, and there's a, there's a couple that just fire like all the time, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then there's ones that have high load, which could be different. Yeah. Um, but then you end up with a whole bunch of disposable ones, which might last for three months. And then you decide, nah, we'll do this a better way. Or it yeah. turns out it was a more complex a solution, or it turns out that feature nobody's nobody's paying you to use that feature, so you, you know, just, it's just going to die. Uh, you end up with um, you end up with uh, th- these kind of generalized services in the middle as well. Uh, they might not be high load, but eighty percent of the eighty tr- percent of the um, 
business logic goes through them. Uh, right. And, I, I'm, I'm, and I'm deliberately not using the term uh, throughput there, right? But 80% of the business logic kind of goes through them. And they tend to stick around, right? So the, the, the really simple conceptual microservice that does a uh, simple user check-in or calculate sales tax or you yep. know, adds up the shopping cart. Um, and then the all shift, the extra- Shift calculation. <laughs> Exactly. But then all the extra weird business logic and business rules and whatever, they live in, they live in these sort of ancillary services. So you end up in a world where um, a new requirement comes in, new feature, and like, okay, it's another microservice. Right. So you extend um, it, and then you create a microservice, and you experiment with that microservice, and maybe it becomes yeah. part, part of the, uh, you know, the core. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so that's that's really nice because uh, loads of different developers. So the whole company, we're into this like remote working thing. So there's a couple mm-hmm. of companies that are like all remote. So we're all remote, um, and that makes that means you you know having a daily stand up is is actually pretty tough, um, especially if you're you all around the world. Yeah, <laughs> different time zones and everything. So yeah. we kind of can't even do that even if we wanted to. Um, the coordination is is you know remote working is. There is a coordination overhead. So mm-hmm. if you remove the need for coordination, um, you allow developers to independently build microservices, work on different parts of the system, and they don't they don't mess up each other's code. They don't introduce instabilities into the whole system. Um, and that is pretty nice. Uh, that, oh. that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really kind of, uh, and it's a, great way to, <laughs> it's a great way to get on with your colleagues, right? Yeah, it's, 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 kind of fights about architecture kind of evaporate because, okay, you want to do it, just go do it that way. Well, it's a bonus side benefit <laughs> to the whole distributed development paradigm as well. I mean, yeah, it's a natural oh, fit. Yeah. Oh, completely, right? Oh, and it gets better, right? So, um, I mean, I've, I've worked in environments where it's like, okay, you've got to have 90% unit test coverage. Right, can't check mm-hmm. stuff in. So here's the problem, right? Some code is generating tons of business value, and some code isn't. Uh, you have a limited amount of you have a limited amount of, of of people to build code, and you have a limited amount of time, especially in a startup. So if you're writing ninety percent code, ninety percent unit test coverage for code that isn't delivering uh, a lot of business value, that's a waste of effort. You should be going for maybe fifty percent coverage. Right, gotcha. so you can you can have like different tiers of quality. Uh, oh yeah, and okay. the microservices give you a way to break that up nicely. You can say, okay, you know, microservices A, B, and C. You know, they're core to the system. They've been around for nine months. Yeah, they kind of better have. In fact, let's go to ninety-five percent coverage because it makes sense. It, it's worth the extra effort. Um, and then these right. extra ones, you know, that have just come in from a new client, and it's kind of an experimental feature. Uh, maybe they don't have tests at all, and <laughs> you just deploy them. Um, well, it gives you a way to focus as well what things that are important. I mean, we can also look at this from a, uh, uh, with cross-cutting concerns. So if you were looking at from a security or a, uh, um, uh, proprietary information uh, aspect, so if you've got information that you have, uh, have to be tightly uh, secured about, uh, or, it, or if the services might be exposed, uh, expose some um, proprietary information. You know, it gives you a way to judge which ones you should focus uh, security on. Exactly. Versus yeah. not. Exactly. Um, and, and I think uh, when, when you're building the systems, people tend to overfocus on the micro. Um, it's okay to have macro services, and right? it's okay to have l- relatively large services. Because you have a very strict boundary around, you know, user management, where you've got to make sure that your your encrypted passwords never leak, all this sort of stuff. Uh, it's probably not a good idea to be passing even the encrypted forms over the network too much. Right. Uh, so it's kind of it's okay to, to have a relatively, you know, large service. Uh, it's not your hundred lines of code. You know, maybe you're getting up to that sort of three thousand lines of code JavaScript. But at the same time, uh, you have the flexibility to do that. And whatever horrible if statements and switch statements and, and sort of hacks that you put in to manage the inevitable technical debt, uh, they stay contained inside that service. Um, you know, the, 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 the documentation for a service, and we auto-generate documentation because you can do this as well. It's just the yeah. list of methods. No, sorry, yeah. the list of the list of messages. Um, you know, whether they're synchronous or asynchronous, 
the, the, uh, some of the parameters they expect, but again, it's, it's not particularly strict. Um, and that's a really great, that means that anybody can use anybody else's service uh, quite simply. Um, you know what else it does? It makes uh, mocking super easy. Um, okay. So I don't know if, if, yeah. if, I mean, as a developer, you probably experience this where you have to, you have to write something, you want it to run the unit tests and you have to create a whole bunch of, you have to create this like mock object hierarchy and yeah, yeah exactly. Spend, like, half the time writing, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> no point or exception again. Yeah. Um, and you end up sort of semi-implementing the thing you're trying to mock. Um, yeah. At the end of with the message of for those mockings. Yeah, and I mean it's it's just it drives. I mean there are libraries for it. It's, it's it gets so complicated, right? But with with the message based approach, there's just one layer, and it's just the messages. So mocking is super simple. You just in your in your user interface in your unit testing code, you um, you just write mock implementations. You just say, oh, I, I matched this pattern, and here's here's some hard coded stuff I, I return. Yeah, exactly. Um, just a quick return shell back. Yeah, so mocking is like is is, is super easy. Uh, that's enough. That's another fantastic thing. But it goes beyond mocking. I mean, we had a client that was uh, had built a really big microservices platform. It was hundreds of services. Wow. And the problem was the system itself was so big that you couldn't run it on a developer laptop. So what they were doing, oh, I, yeah. I, 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 this is true, right? And I'm not going to say who it is. <laughs> and I'm giving you no clues either. <laughs> I would get sued. They had a large virtual machine in some cloud provider for each developer. One of the biggest, right? One of the expensive ones running the entire system for each developer. Wow. And that developer would, build, would, would develop locally and then run against that system. Deployed to the, his own virtual cloud. Yeah, which was basically like a whole, like a, like a mini staging system. Yeah, um, because that was the only way they could run, right? And and because they were using direct HTTP calls, which is basically just like message calls, and they had all this horrible coupling. Um, well, microservices that turned out to be a total disaster for them um, because they hadn't they, they hadn't really thought sort of two steps ahead around how do I mock this? How do I how do I run a system without requiring every other service? Yeah. Uh, so in addition to mocking, if, if the way you interact with other services is just by messages, um, you can write little simulators of the rest of the system, very lightweight, um, that you know, are either running in process or running on your local machine that give, you an, that give you enough simulation of the rest of the system that you don't have to boot up 300 services locally. Or pay huge amounts of money for serious VMs. Although those developers, I think, kind of enjoyed having those machines. <laughs> well, yeah, there's there's the developer side of it, which I'd love to have, you know, <laughs> access to mainframes and yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I mean, un- unwinding that was unwinding that system was kind of crazy. I I, I I don't know if they ever did, but um, this this is the problem, right? If you if you you see all these benefits to microservices, but if you're not careful, um, all the criticisms are true. They're they're genuine criticisms. Um, yeah, it's always a trade-off. There's no free lunch. How, how did you manage the database side of it? Did you end up splitting databases or you know creating yeah. silo yeah. databases? So it's a re- it's a really tricky problem. Um, so. A lot of the systems that, that I've built um, actually had a traditional database architecture and that there was, there was a central database. There might have been Mongo or Postgres or whatever, but all the microservices ended up talking to a database server in, in a traditional you know, multi-layered architecture. Um, now, different microservices might have had responsibility for different tables and you might have had other microservices that were transactional and looked after multiple tables. Um, there is there, there is the uh, ability to take certain types of data and put it into uh, transient stores. Um, so you do have that flexibility. Uh, it's nice to know that it's there, but um, I've never found a huge use for it. Um, okay. I, I, I think microservices are, are fairly compatible with, with the traditional database approach. Um, 
I certainly, I certainly haven't been, haven't found the need to go that extreme. Um, okay, yeah, I, I'm just wondering. Say, I haven't I haven't had to do it myself yet, but I've just. <laughs> I, oh, sorry. There is one thing, right? You got to be aggressive. You got to aggressively denormalize. That is one thing you got to do. Okay. Yes. So you got to accept that you're going to have to do that. Um, that's 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 one another trade off you're going to have to make. Right, and we're, we're starting to see that when we're looking at, data, well, doing data cubes and things like that, so you're normally, yeah. or de- normally denormalizing, if I can say yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, great, I'm great for the like developers, like, they, you know, they, they try to create proper, you know, third normal form structure, I'm like, denormalize, no, tell me the data, it doesn't matter, just tell me the data, uh, it's okay, yeah, <laughs> they look so at me like was, I'm kind of crazy. Yeah, well, it sort of runs counterintuitive to something that we've bashed our, into our heads for so many years. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, you end up having to do things like you have bash processes to go and, and correct data that, you know, because things do go slightly wrong. Um, yes. But it's, 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 it's a different philosophical stance. Again, you're accepting a certain, a certain error rate, uh, a, a, a certain... Uh, incorrectness in the system because you want uh, the ability to develop fast. Um, so, Richard, um, you know, we're, we're coming to an end and you know, unfortunately we've only got one one short little hour to talk. Uh, I have a sense that we could probably do this for, for several hours, if not days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Um, this has been fantastic. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to, you know, one one or two salient bits of advice for the aspiring microservices uh, developer who wants to, you know, or business that, uh, you know, this is an opportunity for business to really be a, a leader. So any last minute messages, last, last bits of advice? Yeah, I think the, the important thing is to is to remember that it's a component architecture. Uh, do, don't get lost in all the cool implementation details and arguing about um, you know whether it should be serverless or some other form. Um, remember why you're doing it. It gives you Legos to build software. Perfect. So focus on the componentization as always. I mean, it gets back to that. Making sure you're following a good object-oriented metaphor. You've got good, solid interfaces, and uh, your structure is uh, is robust enough to be extensible. Absolutely. Well, Richard, I want to thank you so much for coming on board. Uh, I'd love to be able to chat with you again sometime. Hopefully, we can make that kind of an arrangement. Yeah. <laughs> it's been fun. It's been really fun. Awesome. Thank you so much, thank- Thanks so much, Richard. We'll talk to you later. Uh, you've been listening to uh, Martin Lacey and Richard Rogers on the art of software. Thanks very much for joining us. Have a great day and great rest of your week. Thank you for listening to The Art of Software. Be sure to join your host, Martin Lacey, again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.